Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your K9 as well. For more information, go visit our website www.fordk9.com Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello and welcome to Canine's Talking Sense. On this episode, I am getting the opportunity to sit down and interview a guest many of you may know, and some of you this will be a new person to get to hear information from. Uh, Those of you that have heard of PenVet may have also heard of Dr. Cindy Otto. Cindy Otto has graciously given her time to sit down with me, even though during this day and age with the coronavirus going on, uh, some of us have more time, some of us have less time. Uh, Dr. Otto uh, squeezed in some time for us for an interview. So with that said, Dr. Otto, thank you for coming on to the show. I'm really appreciative of your time to talk to our listeners and give us some information. Uh, with that said, real quick, give us a little background of, of what you do and PenVet and what PenVet is about. Sure, absolutely. And thanks for having me, Cameron. Um, so people may not have a full sense of what the PenVet Working Dog Center is. It is a little confusing because we're at the University of Pennsylvania, which is in Philadelphia, and we're at the veterinary school. Um, but what we're doing at the Working Dog Center is really looking at the science behind raising and training uh, the best, healthiest, most successful detection dogs. Okay. And the goal of the, you said the program is to, you know, raise and, and select and train these dogs. Um, what are some of the projects that you guys currently are working on now? And what's been a project that you guys have had uh, that's been very enlightening in this kind of process of puppy to detection dog? So I think it's it's amazing to watch what our whole program has evolved from and to. So we started in 2012, and we actually opened on September 11th, um, which is because of the work that I did with the dogs um, at 9-11 at Ground Zero. And we, we like to think of our program as a legacy to the impact that those dogs had. And our whole goal is to look at what is involved in making that detection dog from the time they start in our program at eight weeks until the time they're graduating. And so we've taken a couple of different approaches. One is how do we know this dog is going to make a great detection dog? But probably a more interesting outcome has been what kind of a career is this dog going to be the most 
successful in. So unlike a lot of programs which might focus strictly on explosive detection dogs or uh, a particular uh, career path, law enforcement, for example, the dogs in our program come to us at eight weeks with an absolute clean slate. So we have Labradors and Shepherds and um, dogs that are coming either from our own breeding program or have been donated by breeders with excellent health histories and performance histories in their lines. And these dogs come in and they learn the foundations. They learn the basics about what it is to use their noses, um, obedience, agility, fitness. And as they evolve, we're constantly trying to come up with what assessment or test can tell us where they're most likely to be most successful. So our dogs can end up as... Uh, urban search and rescue disaster dogs, which is kind of what we think of as some of our most challenging careers to be in, or dual-purpose law enforcement dogs. We also end up with a lot of single-purpose dogs, whether those are explosive detection, narcotics detection, um, arson. Um, we've had some bed bug dogs in our in our group. So lots of different single-purpose careers that they might end up in. And then we have our medical detection area, which are the dogs that are working in um, more of a research uh, field of cancer detection and also some of our invasive species like the spotted lanternfly, which is a, a recent invasive species on the East Coast. So I think one of our greatest things, and we haven't come to the answer yet, um, but we're, we're, we're starting to dig at it now that we have uh, so much data on so many dogs, is so what is it that makes a dog good at a particular career path? Yeah, no, that's obviously uh, where you and I cross paths quite a bit on is the work I got to do with and still get to do with uh, Dr. Hare from Duke is, you know, the cognitive testings that are uh, tests that we do to kind of help us look at or see some qualities or know that particular dog better. So that way we can say, okay, this is leaning towards this and this is potentially indicative of, do you guys do a lot of, or how do you guys go through that process? Is it also cognitive based? Uh, what are some of the things that you guys look at when you're, you know, potentially selecting that puppy to see, is it uh, got potential to become a detection dog? So what we like to do is take everybody else's best approaches and try and <laughs> yeah, incorporate sure. them. Yeah. <laughs> so we've learned from um, customs and border protection. So the border patrol dogs had, um, in, the, in their small breeding program, they were testing dogs probably twice a week from the time they were four weeks, or if we don't get them until they're eight weeks, we start at eight weeks. And so we're looking at how they interact with their environment, um, how comfortable they are on an elevated surface, how willing they are to you know chase uh, different objects. And so we, we accumulate all of that data. We also um, took what the TSA and Scott Thomas were doing with his puppies. And so at, at three, six, nine, and 12 months, we're, we're looking at their search, at their engagement, um, at their willingness to, to really work hard for an object that they can't see and, and use their noses. Uh, we, we take some of the search and rescue uh, assessments and we evaluate how the dogs are on different you know, surfaces, on uneven surfaces, unstable surfaces, how confident they are on the rubble, how um, able they are to work independently versus working dependently. 
Um, so we, we do all of this behavioral testing, and then we do some of the straight-up cognitive testing. Um, our postdoctoral fellow, Dr. Jenny Esler, has been amazing at really introducing some of the the, the true cognition testing. So we're trying to, to add that um, to the battery. And, and what our goal is now is to kind of dig in and figure out of all these tests that we're doing, which ones actually matter. Uh, because we're a research program, we have that extra time to really accumulate this information. But our goal is take it all and then let's see which things actually are predictive so as we go forward, we can become more efficient and also share that um, with other people who are, are raising and training their dogs for detection work. Yeah, no, and that's one of the things I've I've seen as I've been traveling around and, and doing and sharing the cognitive tests. Um, you know, those that have heard me talk about it and, and seen me do it, it's that part alone is just kind of like a window into what I call like the user manual for the dog. You know, you get to see is a dog more leaning to you know inference? Does it naturally do these things very well, um, or is a dog really strong in memory? And then understanding those two differences, and then how to use those in your training, or or how to as we've did in the testing with Duke is okay. We see a young pup who is, let's say, strong in memory, but the you know inference skill set was a little less. Well, we can create games that help build that or exploit that and build and have that better uh, that quality increase when later and when we test if the dog gets older, and seen some good ch- changes in that as well. Um, has there been a uh, anything that stands out to you guys with all those various tests that you guys see that's pretty good across the board uh, in that younger puppy stage? And I say puppy stage, let's just say from six months to eight weeks old kind of time frame. Yeah, I think that, you know, again, because our, our dogs are end up tracking on different careers and we're not trying to enhance their natural skills to make them do something that they might not have done naturally, um, what we have found is that... Um, one of the tests that we adopted from Border Patrol seems to be um, pretty helpful in predicting the dogs that are going to be strong in search and rescue, and, and that is this elevated catwalk. So the dogs that are comfortable and confident walking across an elevated plank at you know at eight weeks of age or at ten weeks of age, um, those dogs you know just have and, and maybe we can call it nerve strength or we can call it confidence or whatever we want to call that. They have that spatial awareness and that, you know, comfort with their own body in these um, types of of areas, you know, it might be they also have no sense of self-preservation and maybe that's what we're actually selecting (laughs) for. No, and and you're and you're right. It's that's the one thing I I try to relate to people when we have this discussion about raising dogs to become detection dogs in some form or another. Is that just like you said? Not every dog's going to be, you know, geared towards let's say explosive detection, or not every dog is going to be used for narcotics and so forth. But the every you know you can find numerous uses uh, for dogs that you you know. 
it's being open-minded and knowing, you know, and, and doing those important things at those in stages in the dog's or the puppy's, you know, lifespan at those ages where we can say, oh, okay, I see this. This actually might be great in medical detection or, wow, this dog, you said, like, you know, based on those tests that you guys conducted, this is going to be potentially a good dog for uh, search and rescue or HRD. Um, you know, people don't have to or potential of those breeders who want to contribute to us being able to have dogs here in the United States to pull from don't have to be so singly focused on, you know, it has to be a bomb dog or I need to produce X amount of dogs that are bomb dogs. There's so many other avenues for a lot of these uh, puppies to go into versus being so, you know, uh, finite focused on a certain you know career path. Yeah, and for us, I mean, what that has turned out is that in the seven and a half years that we've been open, um, we have 94% of the dogs that have come through our program have detection jobs. So, you know, it makes a huge difference if we're willing to be flexible in their career path and just recognize what they do and what they do well um, and put them in that direction rather than trying to, you know, take a dog that maybe doesn't have the environmental confidence um, and put them into a single-purpose detection dog. Those dogs do phenomenally, and oftentimes, actually, those very environmentally sensitive dogs do really well in our medical detection because they are very sensitive to small changes, small differences in odor when they're trying to discriminate between a patient that has ovarian cancer um, and the samples from a patient that does not have ovarian cancer, and that's that's that sensitive dog, and that's just a great career path for them. Oh, absolutely. When I was uh, down at Texas Tech, you know, the research that Nathan Hall's doing, in, uh, especially on thresholds, was absolutely amazing to watch, you know, some dogs going down to the parts per trillion. And, and they're doing it with your average, you know, rescue dog or pound puppy, as they say, um, and is not necessarily any kind of breed specific, you know, dogs that might, like you said, might have been more sensitive to environmental things or what have you. But in an environment like that, where it's more like a medical style of uh, testing for detection for a dog, um, it's amazing some of those qualities that those dogs exhibit. You know, not every dog could do the parts per trillion, but uh, those that did, it was it was amazing to watch, and it shows just how skilled various dogs are. But you might not know until you at, at least put together a process that helps you evaluate these puppies to you know adult dogs to see where they're a best fit at. And that leads me to this next question I have is. What would you say is an important or critical stage when doing evaluations, or what have you found has been a very important ages to to uh, look at dogs? Um, I think there isn't one. Okay, good. <laughs> I think it's a continuum. I think that we need to look at dogs repeatedly. I think one of our biggest challenges that we've had with trying to come up with a single test to determine if the dog is going to be good or not is that that is just a snapshot in time. Um, and there can be dogs that are just tracking along, tracking along, doing really well. And then we hit some, you know, whether it's a fear period or an incident that, that this dog, you know, experienced that then completely changed the dog, especially if we aren't paying close attention to it at that time where we can kind of undo any potential damage. Um, because the dogs can, you know, be looking fantastic and then again if we're just not we're not paying attention along the way we can we can lose track and I think 
you know, we can have a phenomenal genetic potential. We can have a dog that's really great and we can mess it up really easily. And what would you say is a typical cause for messing it up? Um, I think it's probably fear. Um, I think the dogs that have an experience of fear um, that is not resolved, um, they they then sort of amplify that fear. Um, and we know that environmental sensitivity is one of our big reasons that um, our, our explosive detection dogs fail, that our you know, military dogs fail. Um, and so when that fear then translates from, you know, this is a scary experience to, you know, everything becomes a scary experience or all new experiences become scary, um, I think that's when we really lose a lot of opportunity and, and I think that's something to pay attention to and something, you know, by continuing to evaluate these dogs and, and just being aware of how they're responding, I think we can also prevent that from happening as soon as we start to see some of the signs of that. So basically doing a lot of environmental exposure is critical at those younger stages. Would you agree with that? Or is you know, how would you explain that to the person who's, you know, wanting to or has good, let's say, lineage and dogs, what would you recommend to them as far as that environmental exposure? Yeah, absolutely. That early and, and varied environmental exposure. Um, and I think that, that I think that's huge. I think that the more different experiences these dogs dogs can have and have in a positive way, then all of a sudden it becomes almost rewarding for them to have a new and unusual experience. And those are the dogs that are, are going to really excel, particularly in a disaster setting or the dual purpose dog, because they're like, oh, wow, look, a new opportunity to do something really fun. Oh, yeah. And a lot of what I've seen when it comes to whether it be breeders or people just raising young dogs is they want to get so focused on putting odor on a dog right away, whether it be weeks old or what have you. Um, and from my experience, what I've seen is that sometimes causes them to overlook that critical time of the environmental exposure that should be done or more time spent on that. Um, have you seen any uh, benefit or any real, you know, I would say gains from doing early odor association? So we are big fans of early odor. Um, we are lucky enough to use the um, universal detection calibrant compound that um, Ken Furton developed at Florida International University. So this compound is a synthetic chemical that's not, you know, available in the environment. So we can use it to train the dogs. And what happens is the dogs learn to use their noses from the time they're eight weeks old. And they're also, we, we train them all to find live humans. And so that hunting behavior becomes so natural. What we find is that the dogs that have learned this, when they feel any kind of you know, stress or uncertainty, they default to, okay, when I know what to do, I know to search. I know to use my nose. And they go into like search mode. Um, uh, it's the other really great thing that we feel like we see with the dogs that have already learned an odor, a specific odor, is that when it comes time to imprint them on their career odor, they imprint incredibly fast um, because they it's it's in, I don't know we equate it to learning a language. Once you learn the second language, 
learning a third is not as, as challenging, especially if you're young. Yeah. <laughs> we, we think of this as their, their language of smell and, and really becoming very familiar with it. Um, so that is, for us, that's been a real benefit. Um, it just, it just seems that the dogs are one, enjoying it. I mean, they love the game and they, you know, they have that ability then to, um, to, to really go into search mode pretty darn quickly. And we're, we're wanting to look into more of the science and the neuroscience of this, but, but what we can just see from watching these dogs and just, you know, observing video and behavior is that this, it almost gives them that confidence to navigate their environments. Like, oh, I don't care about what else is here because I'm just going to follow my nose and I'm going to find that odor that I'm looking for. No, and, and you said some critical things there that were very important, the things I, I tried to uh, pass on as well, which was everything, you know, game-wise is about using their nose. And uh, like I said, how I started that question is a lot of people got so focused on a particular detection odor, whether it be bomb or narcotic or whatever, um, they didn't see the forest from the trees, if I'm explaining it right, in the sense that they got so focused on that that it wasn't, about searching you know it became like about the odor recognition part and what should they do and all these extra tasks that were about indication and so forth versus letting the dog understand how to search and hunt you know searching and hunting and like you said defaulting to that and having that skill set which goes back to where i've seen it on the inference side of things when i create a let's say a puzzle or a problem for the dogs they will default to that searching ability much faster than that say the ones that were heavy in, in memory. But the default mechanism for the dog was using its nose to problem solve or using its nose as a way to navigate the environment and be successful at it and receive, you know, the reinforcer. Um and then you brought in the the that compound that Dr. Furton has. Um and I think obviously many people aren't familiar that this exists because the number one question I get after the other things is well, what do I, is there an odor I can associate a dog to? Um, and of course, that has been a very puzzling issue for many to deal with because obviously many people will reach for an odor that they can get their hands on. And unfortunately, uh, those odors are also very common in the environment. So then there's a limiting factor that comes with that. Um, the odor compound that Dr. Furton has, um, is that, uh, how is that typically obtainable? Now I know, which leads me to questions coming up here, the AKC you know, program is starting to develop further and further each year. Um, and is this something that will be available to those that are participating or that want to participate in a program like that? Um, we hope so. Um, Dr. Furton's been trying to uh, kind of develop it, and we've been working with him on a research basis to, you know, at first he gave us this, you know, amount that he thought was pretty low, and the dog said, no, this is really high. <laughs> we kept going lower and lower and lower and lower. And so we've been working with him trying to, you know, help refine that so that we have a, a useful and effective tool. Um, but that's actually, you know, Dr. Furton is the one that would be the one that would be basically commercializing it. So it's available, sure. but we, when we started, we were using you know, pieces of tug or whatever. And then we had to prove them off of a leather yep. and it was just, it was a nightmare. And mm-hmm. this has just totally been a game changer for us. No. And that, and that is absolutely critical. Cause like I said, the, the thing I get all the time is, well, 
since I want my the pups I have to be able to be used in X, Y, or Z odor detection uh, avenue, um, I can't do. I want to be able to practice this. How do I? What do I use? And obviously, in most cases, at a certain age, most are just using food, which has its abilities and, and is somewhat innocuous. As long as there's not like a, it's just a hunting game. Um, but to have, like you said, that's a game changer item for those that as this kind of becomes uh, important for us uh, in the United States to develop our own programs that we can have a pool of good dogs to choose from uh, that just to, to, know, to know right off the bat that, okay, yep, I can see right now at this age or I've been able to develop these dogs that have you know very solid uh, search and hunt um, environmental ability to deal with stressors and still keep that search and hunt going search duration uh is another big one that uh you know i think sometimes gets overlooked because it becomes so much about the find than it does the hunt part of it um and we end up selling some of the puppies short a little bit by making some things too easy you know you joke around i said everybody doesn't want to see their, their dogs fail but nothing creates hunting better than hunting and you know it, it doesn't always have to be go, you know, 30 seconds or 10 seconds and find something. Um, you know, there's always different reasons for different things, but uh, we as humans find ourselves in ruts pretty quickly and dogs pick up on that very fast themselves. Yeah, and I think that the other advantage, and you kind of alluded to it, is, you know, when we have this, we can actually have blank rooms that you know, we feel confident that, you know, we can we can have them continuing to search and, and know that, that you know, they are going to keep looking and keep looking. And, and we do feel like that these dogs, be, you know, whether it's because they've been doing it for so long or, you know, because it's, you know, such a fun game or because the dogs that we have in our program are just been amazing because of their genetics as well as the, you know, the, the way we're raising them. Um, but they, yeah, they can just keep on going, which is really, really important. Absolutely. And, Kind of take you know piggybacking into this next question here is a lot of people are looking for that process of okay so I have the pups they're let's just say I'm going to start with eight weeks old eight weeks old what do I do from eight weeks to let's just say four months so the next the next month or so from eight weeks to twelve weeks or eight weeks to sixteen weeks um, it's would you say, based on what you guys do, it's that searching and hunting game as well as exposure to the environment? Would that be a broad blueprint as far as goals and objectives for those age ranges and along with anything else that you would recommend? Yeah, so we, we definitely are. Those are huge. Those are probably number one and number two. Um, another thing that we are big advocates of, and, and maybe it's because I'm a veterinarian and, and I am, I'm a specialist in, in canine sports medicine, but physical fitness is is a big part of what we're doing. And we're teaching the puppies the behaviors young. So, you know, what, what are those fitness exercises and stretches? So, you know, even though they're, you know, the most limber of all animals, um, they, learn, they learn these behaviors and it just becomes part of their norm to... They do a warm-up before they go out and search. They do a cool-down after they come in. It becomes habit. Um, and then as we start building into, you know, strength and, and, you know, endurance, we don't worry about until they're, they're much older. But they at least 
know that this is a treadmill and you know I'm comfortable walking on this and um, so incorporating that into kind of their every day because you know they're puppies and they have an attention span of like three seconds and so we you know we just do little things but lots of different little things. Canines Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Oh yeah, no, and I'm so glad you brought that up because the fitness part obviously gets overlooked along with other things that we talked about earlier, but having that that dog that can have that I call it endurance because we all know detection is something that requires significant lack of a better term cardio for the dog too because of the rapid sniffing and searching and distance and things like that and one of the things that ends up being a downfall later on for a lot of dogs that I got to see later on in in my career was being able to search for a significant period of time and but they weren't set up for that because we also overlooked like you just said that fitness part of it you know the exercise so yeah and it's it's strength too yes. because you know think about our dogs that are searching high and, and blowing up on their back legs i mean what we know is that the majority of dogs that end up not working are often because of physical uh, impairment of, of moving around, getting up on their back end. Um, you know, back problems and hip problems are huge in the military dogs and, you know, all of our working dogs. And if we can incorporate some of this, you know, strength training to go along with our cardiovascular, um, I think we're going to end up with better, stronger, healthier dogs. So what's something, you know, you would recommend in that fitness a genre for dogs at that younger stage? What would you recommend people to, what are some simple, easy things that they can do to accomplish those goals? Yeah. So 
there's a couple of things that we do just from the very beginning. One, you know, what's a warm up before someone, you know, a dog goes to work? Well, it's not not very hard. It's like 30 seconds of, of walking in and, and trotting. Um, we like having them um, do some active stretches. So a, fig, a figure eight stretch, um, basically what that's doing is getting the dog to um, side bend, lateral side bending. And you can do that with them like weaving in and out of your legs or you can put you know, two obstacles in front of you and have them do a, basically a figure eight around that. Um, to start getting that motion from side to side. Um, and so that's going to be something that's going to be, you know, potentially, you know, valuable to, to get them moving. Um, we also do what's called a pause up stretch and that's just putting their paws either on like a chair or putting them on your arm and stretching your hip flexors because the hip flexors are, are definitely things that get tight in these guys. And again, as puppies, you know, they don't need a whole lot of stretching, but they are starting to make this a habit is a really big, big thing. Um, one of the other really simple exercises that we do um, is one that, that I learned from Petra Ford, um, who's a physical therapist, an animal physical therapist, and, and it's called a posture. Well, we call it a posture sit. Okay. So I don't know how you're sitting, but I'm sitting with my back rounded and I know better than that. <laughs> I might be kind of doing the same thing as I lean into the microphone here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but our dogs tend to do this too. They kind of rock back on their, their pelvis and they round their backs. Um, and so what we do is we actually have them just lure them just a couple inches forward. So their back um, forms a nice straight line all the way down from their head to their tail it's almost like a ski slope. Um, their knees are sitting over their toes and their, their feet are square under them. Just that rocking, you know, forward and holding that is starting to build some of those hip stabilizers, those spine stabilizers, totally low impact. And if we start doing it as puppies, they start to learn, oh, this is the way I always sit. Um, and so it's going to actually help with their structure. Um, we're, you know, we don't have scientific data to to document the impact of this, but um, it certainly makes sense from a physiology and a sports medicine side. I was going to say that's a, you're you're bringing up a whole nother uh, area where I'm seeing research uh, drastically increase is in that let's say canine sports medicine or canine fitness uh, aspect to include obviously the rehabilitation aspect as well. Um, is that stuff that you guys are also doing far more research on there at PennVet? Yeah, absolutely. We're trying to come up with and validate our sort of adult fitness plan as well as our career-specific fitness plan for these working dogs. Um, you know, so what are our recommendations? And then how do we evaluate and see how they're doing? Uh, it's a little bit of like CrossFit for dogs, um, but, you know, we're, we're trying to get some science behind it and get some data with our dogs and some of our the local law enforcement dogs that we work with. And, and I think that is a, a work in progress, but it's coming along pretty fast. Um, luckily, I have an amazing uh, veterinarian who's working with us, uh, Major uh, Brian Farr, who comes to us from Special Forces, and and he um, he's he's been very passionate about really taking uh, what, our program, which we call Fit to Work, to the next level. And so, there's going to be some exciting stuff on that at our um, at the PennVetWorking.com conference, which will be um, in April. It's going to be all virtual, so it'll actually be available. To people even beyond the the dates it goes it goes live so that's um, 
a lot of what we're going to be presenting, you know, from, from our group. Um, we'll include that that fitness side of things. Yeah, no, that'll be really good for it. Obviously, like you said, being virtual, it'll expand it out to a, a much broader audience that will help quite a bit with uh, uh, getting that information out there. Because obviously, before yeah, we had to travel, travel out to the conference, so um, maybe one of these things is a blessing in disguise. Is this kind of concept now to be able to share in a more in a broad term like that for sure. Yeah, and we, you know, one of the things we loved about our conference was the ability for people to really cross-pollinate because we drew people from all sorts of different aspects of working dog um, world, whether it's veterinarians, researchers, service dogs, detection dogs, law enforcement. Um, but we're hoping to kind of still build that community in, in more of the virtual space and, and definitely expand out who's able to participate um, in, in the, uh, the conference itself. No, for sure. Now, there's another aspect that you know kind of gets overlooked a lot of times in the detection world, and we've talked about it here a couple times, the medical detection dogs. Um, I would love to talk a little bit more about that, just because I know they typically don't get a lot of the attention that uh, they should. So... Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's a timely, a timely topic. Absolutely. Which I'll get into that. That's part two of this question is, so what have you seen, or I'll start off with this question. What are important qualities for dogs that go on to have a career in medical detection? So I think we first need to define what a career in medical detection is, because we can kind of look at this as two different approaches for medical detection. There are medical detection service dogs, which would be a diabetic alert dog, a seizure alert dog, um, one of these dogs that's paired with their human partner and lives and works one-on-one. Then we have the medical detection dogs like what we're using, which are dogs that are really helping us with the research, answering the questions, the proof of concept, is there an odor here that's different associated with this disease or that disease? And a lot of the work we're doing in that area, particularly um, in our biggest area, is probably ovarian cancer. We're hoping to translate that, help um, other people who are developing um, electronic sensors to kind of use the dog's ability and their knowledge to guide them in developing better sensing technology that can be really widely utilized um, for what what I call high throughput or screening hundreds of thousands of patients a day. Um, so those are those are kind of the two different ends of that. Um, there, there may be a middle ground there somewhere, but what we've, what we've historically, we started with some diabetic alert dogs, um, and the odor part of that is not, is not that difficult. The rest of it, um, of working with the individuals and supporting them, um, through their, their sort of need with the service dog side of it is a whole nother world. And, and there are people who do that. Um, much better than than we do. We're much more interested and and talented, I think, in the in the detection side of things. Sure. Now, obviously, you you brought up there's the various uh, aspects that medical detection dogs do uh, when it comes to specific odor. The like you said, the cancer detection um, is probably the most well known and popular. I've received, and I'm sure you have probably received, numerous emails in the past month or so in regards to can dogs detect coronavirus, and you know this kind of thing. I'll let you kind of speak about that. We'll kind of go from there. So here's my here's my take on it. In theory, the answer is yes. 
Um, one, we have some evidence from Auburn University that dogs can detect the odor associated with a virus. So they, they were able to show that the dogs were able to detect um, a culture, an odor with a cultured bovine viral diarrhea virus. Uh, not a common one that most yeah. people are familiar <laughs> with. Um, there's also plenty of literature looking at the volatile organic compound signature, so basically the smell associated with other viruses and bacteria. Um, influenza virus is, is fairly well documented. Um, we have done some really exciting studies with a bacterial infection um, that the dogs can learn the smell of the bacteria and then they can actually identify individuals that have that infection, which is very exciting. Um, but as far as the, the coronavirus itself, um, I should be able to give you more data in probably three to four weeks um, as to whether or not the, the dogs are able to do that. We, we do have a project that is ongoing um, where we will be um, training and testing the dogs on samples um, from patients um, with coronavirus. So that is, that is a, a very recent um, and very rapidly escalating project that we're working on. Oh yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, the the information you know based on I what that I had at my fingertips was the variable problem, the individuals and the other odors that are admitted and the compounds that happen within whether it be blood. Uh, urine, the diet, the uh, all those different myriad of of odors that come into it, mucus, all that kind of stuff. Um, th- at the end of the day, what was more efficient, you know, and where was uh, best use for a dog? And in the discussions I've had, I, I, I my opinion was. I would use a dog to locate areas that may have coronavirus on it more so than searching people to detect it. Uh, you know, my opinion was we have better or more efficient ways to test people, but I think it would be helpful to find where it might be lingering or existing in a environment that people are going to come in contact with. Is that something similar to what you guys are looking at? That's a really interesting approach, and and actually, you know, my main goal of our looking at it with the dogs is to determine is there a volatile um, organic chem- compound signature that's unique to Corona. Um, because if there is, then our colleagues that are working on the electronic sensors can take off. Um, you know, but if they're looking for it sort of blindly, it's going to be a lot harder. Um, you know, if they're just, you know, our friends that do the, the GCMS chemical signature stuff, there's so many chemicals, it's really hard to isolate out. But if we can say that the dogs are clearly showing us that there's an odor difference, um, and we are using patient samples. We're not actually testing on the, you know, the, the active virus yeah. because we don't want to get it. Exactly. Um, so, so we're we're actually working with patient samples where the virus will be inactivated. Um, so we're looking for any of the the volatiles that have been either released by the virus in the patient or the patient's response to the virus. I think you're, you know, you're calling about different diets, different things. That's something that we saw, you know, as a potential concern when we were doing ovarian cancer detection. And what we know is that if we train on enough different people and we never use the same sample twice, um, then the dogs um, have seemed to be able to generalize quite well um, as to what's common across 
um, and hopefully we'll have lots of um, different variation in you know ethnic background and age and all of those other things. So that that really that gives the dogs their best chance possible um, to go ahead and 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 um, you know identify that that common thing. So for sample screening, I absolutely don't think that's the place for the dogs in the long run. Um, because I think our our machines can be more effective and efficient. You know, that's that whole high throughput sensing. One of the places that our, our collaborators are really interested is um, using the dogs kind of as if we were doing PSA screening. So do we have a huge number of people who are lining up to get screened can we run a dog through and say, hey, you get get out of line, you you're positive, most likely, let's confirm it with another test and get you out of you know, out of circulation. Um so that's that's a theory. We don't know if it'll work in that realm, um, but it is definitely something that we are gonna explore. Um, you know, from a, a research perspective, and if it's working, then then there there may well be a demand for some of these dogs to Know, screen people before they go into schools or before they go into public places. Um, you know, that's our biggest hope though is that our dogs will pick up those people that are asymptomatic, that they, you know, have the virus but don't have a cough or a fever. So those are the ones that are the, the most dangerous for uh, spreading this. Oh yeah. No, I mean, it's, this is definitely one of those cases where it's got kind of like a, a race between technology and canine. Uh, because with, you know, the, the dogs, there's, like you said, the mobile factor that we could, you know, screen basically the air in or around an individual and that might, you know, locate, or is it more efficient to have people come up and I'm sure at the same time, there's a significant technological research being done for like a, whether it be a swab test or whatever, like, you know, similar to like a snap test. Can we do something very quickly, efficiently and uh, what ends up being uh, out of the gate first and obviously the most efficient in the process. And that's the part, like I would try to relate to people is like, you know, can dogs do this? Yes. Is it the most efficient? That's the part. And I'm obviously, you know, this is my career, you know, but I wonder at the end of the day, what is the efficiency ability uh, for this? And I also know not only you guys, but there's also the group over in England, correct, that's also doing the same uh, research? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Claire Gask and, and the group over at Medical Detection Docs UK, and I, I haven't reached out to them because I know they're just completely overwhelmed. Um, but I'm not sure what, you know, what approach they're taking. Um, so once we, we get ours up and running, then we'll share some some data with them and see you know, if we can help each other move things um, forward faster. But I totally agree with you that, you know, the way that we're using the dogs is to, one, document there's a volatile signature. And if that's the case, that's really going to give incentive and you know, help people who are working on assays based on the volatile, you know, get them funding so that they can, you know, rev these things up. Um, and then, you know, there may be other, it might be that environmental contamination or it might be, you know, the, you know, large crowd human screening type stuff where you're just quickly going through. Um, but I, I, you know, the, the sample screening long-term is, is not for me a, a logical place for the dog. Yeah. No, I mean, in no matter what, even what comes of this may have an effect or, uh, give us something for dogs totally for a separate reason, but the information and data we get from this may have a dramatic effect on something else. You know, what we learned here 
on a medical side of uh, things with dogs because of this virus taught us something that we can quickly end up using dogs for in the future for something else when it comes to a medical type related thing. So at all of this, there's no, there's no loss in this. There's, it's nothing but gains. It just may not come out in the way that our initial design is, but we will get absolutely some great information from projects like this, what you guys are doing and what's happening around the world. Yeah, I have no doubt. I have absolutely no doubt. And, and really one of the things that we really like is that proof of concept. You know, you know dogs are so quick to be able to learn a new odor um, that we can say yes or no fairly rapidly um, as new things come out. And then that would give people the, the impetus to, you know, follow that path um, for other technology. Um, or maybe there are some things that the dogs, you know, depending, again, on, on the environment, um, that might be better done by the dogs. Uh, one of the other medical detection projects we're working on is um, a disease of deer called chronic wasting disease. Um, this is a, a prion disease that, you know, is spreading through the, the deer and the moose and the elk population and killing them. And, you know, so the the thought is that the, the dogs can actually screen the environment for it. So just like you were saying with, you know, the, the COVID-19, that, you know, environmental screening large areas, pinpointing where it is or, you know, importantly where it's not, yeah. could be really valuable. No, for sure. The other part I had on the medical testing uh, or detection with dogs is, you know, in the drug dog world, you know, now that, you know, the bomb dog world, we always had an odor recognition test to deal with, whether it be for the ATF or various federal things. And, you know, years and years and years ago, probably, I don't know, I date myself now, but just shy of 20 years ago, I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a waste of time. My dog finds the explosives in all the environments. I know it's good. Why do I need to do this stupid paint can test? <laughs> and as I got into working dogs a whole lot more, I really value the odor recognition aspect as a the big, one of the beginning steps for the evaluation of a dog uh, for before it goes out operational. So with that said, the drug dog world has never really dealt with this too much. Finally, it's coming around more often. Obviously, in the medical world, I, I love how they do it. Where it's even further, where the handler is out of the picture, usually standing behind, uh, you know, two way mirror or a, a door with a small window on it, so the handler can still see the dog. Uh, the dog goes around the wheel, and, and and it gives indication if there is a presence of that whatever the trained odor is. Um, how important would you say odor recognition testing should be in the narcotic world? So funny you should ask. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm sure you're familiar with all of the Swig Dog guidelines. Oh and, yes. You know how that's converted over now to NIST uh, and the the OSAC group, and so those new and they're coming out as standards. They're not coming out as guidelines. Coming out as standards, and there's two parts to um, certification, and one is the odor recognition test, and the other is the um, the actual operational. And the very strong recommendation is that that operational be, or at least one of the tests be done as a double blind. So um, I personally think that they both should be done as double blind. It's so amazing how the impact of doing something as a double blind really changes it, but it's also the real world. I mean, when we're out there screening and we don't know, you know, we, we need to be able to have that confidence, trust our dog, and make sure that they're not skewing off of us or, or doing something because we're, you know, because we want something to be found. 
Absolutely. Our, our bias will always sneak into the equation sometimes. And, oh, yeah. And, and of course, that's the main thing. That's what started my path on reaching out to Brian for the cognitive information because some of the stuff he was doing in those, the, when I watched him on uh, Nat Geo Wild, uh, those episodes, I was like, oh my gosh, this is everything we deal with in detection as problems. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, and, and now that I've been doing it for a little over five or six years, um, is the fact that how important it is, but man, the narcotic world was so, uh, still very much, you know, I would say, I'm going to use the word fearful or scared of it in a sense, because that's the initial, you know, human reaction is like, I don't need this, that's stupid, and you know why? Because it exposes potential problems that they don't prepare for. And what I show them is if you, all you do is train, it's just a matter of setting this up and running it, you know, and, and, but it's a really quick way to determine if there's things to work on, you can see them a whole lot easier. It, it, It quickly identifies something in a very balanced way, you know, which is if we are going to entrust dogs and in their handlers on fourth amendment search and seizure rights of individuals, we need to know that these dogs are solid at indicating on the correct train odor with other distracting proofing and blank items in the space. And there's nothing more balanced than a typical odor recognition testing, you know, obviously ones that are set up properly. Um, I have seen the state of Illinois has now implemented that for narcotics dogs. I think it was September 15th or 16th of this past year that that's now part of, just like you said, with what NIST is putting out. And because I work a lot with uh, Dr. Paula Tiedemann, and uh, you know, it, it's it's such an important part. So it's good to see that there's uh, at least a state that's already started to make that a mandatory aspect, getting out ahead of uh, what will be coming out in the written standards, but. You know, like I, I do work with LA County and some other of the bigger agencies, and I've showed them that standard, the write up right now as it is, so they can get prepared for it. And those that are now that they're not afraid for it and they train for it, they're all now those groups that do are like, oh, yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, we should be doing this. This is a great way to also prepare a legal defense, you know, to help show that we're not giving out bias or dogs can and do indicate to a uh, target train target odor despite other distracting and proofing items present and then we go also test ourselves operationally kind of like a peer review for uh, in the medical world so matching up you know instead of just being the typical the way it's been for so many years which is hey here's my stack of records I'm going to put it on your desk lawyer and scare you away because the folder is a four inch binder and you know you'll never go through all this stuff and added to the fact that, oh, yeah, I, I train under you know XYZ national standard, and we do five cars, two fines, five rooms, two fines, and blah, blah. It's, you know, it's a great way to evaluate, which we all know is horse crap. <laughs> 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 it, 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 we, it, when it comes to a standard, especially ones that affect people's rights, we have to do the right thing. And thank goodness now, with individuals like you and Auburn and Duke and Texas Tech and the ones that I'm, of course, I know there's other ones I'm missing, um, where we are finally having this science world intermingle with the legal world that really helps us out in a sense. You know, everybody, it's just like with law enforcement, we were, you know, I was in the transition period when we didn't have body cameras and we started using them. And that was freaking out a lot of those veteran officers that were very much used to operating and, you know, they committed a crime. They should trust me. If I'm, if I'm putting them in cuffs or I had to fight somebody, it's because we had to do it where 
now the officers who've you know been hired and this is standard, they're used to it. They're not afraid of being on film or the cameras running twenty four seven. They actually see it as it helps them do their job. It helps protect them, just as this will do. You know, doing a science based evaluation of your dog and its ability to detect odor is only going to help you. Is not going to hurt you. But I think, and as you already know, you know. The Lisa Litt study scarred a lot of the law enforcement world. I mean, I run in, I'm sure you probably do as well. I run into a lot of closed doors the minute they say, hey, can I bring a researcher in? We want to talk about this. Boom, you know, uh, there's that re- initial reaction. It's changing more and more. And I, for whatever reason, ended up kind of this late liaison between the professional world and the academic world. So I get some doors open because I try to explain to him from the professional side of things, this is going to help us. You know, here's how I can show you what helps us. This is what I can tell you. So is that some of the same stuff you guys have run into as well, being from the academic and research side of things? Well, I think the nice thing about our program is that we have practitioners um, as part of our program. And so because we're actually producing dogs that are going out and working and we're working very closely with law enforcement. We, you know, we do have a scent detector school. We have a patrol school. We provide in service and, and you're going to be speaking with Bob Doherty who, who's leading all of that. Um, I think that we have um, developed a really strong relationship and trust with a lot of the practitioners because we're with them on that. We're, you know, we're not just, standing back from our little ivory tower thing. Yeah. Critiquing from a distance and judging and making them feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, and I think that helps. I mean, it, we, we are, we are part of the search and rescue community. We're part of the, in a law enforcement community where, you know, and, and we are advocating on every you know possible avenue for them and they see the value of, of the research that we're doing and, and we're kind of moving it forward together. Um, and I think that that's, you know, we do need to make sure we have that trust and, and that our goals are for the, you know, the better um, success of the teams, um, you know, the better welfare of the dogs, the better health of the dogs, the, you know, the better performance, um, but, you know, also for the teams to make sure that what we're doing is represented well. And, you know, we want these dogs to be able to be out there doing this job. And if if the the lawyers find holes, and we're not willing to step up, then we're going to lose the ability to use these amazing animals to, to help save lives. Absolutely. No, and, and that's one of the things I always try to educate a lot of the handlers on is like, okay, when things go into the legal world, where is the legal world going to go to to validate what you present? They're going to go to the academic. They're going to go to the science and research side of things. So why not be a part of that equation instead of avoiding it? And the more that they're a part of it, the more that they're uh, engrossed with it and understand it, the better they be prepared to answer those questions or challenges when it comes from the legal side. So, uh, you know, my goal in, in doing the podcast and things like that is to share the information out there so that way it kind of pulls back the veil a little bit and, and opens up those doors of communication uh, and connection so that way you know, these, you know, there'd be professionals, no matter what, search and rescue officers on the, on the road, those kind of things, they have a place that they maybe can go to and ask questions to, like, hey, I'm doing this, you know, I'm doing actually later on tonight a webinar with Michelle Mon and Jenna Gadbury on containment um, odor. You can, t- you can talk to Michelle about um, 
COVID-19. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Yeah. So, no, exactly. So we've been talking about the uh, containment because so many, as you've seen yourself, there's so many ways that these agencies store their training aids, most of which is... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a major problem area. So, you know, we're going to do a webinar this evening that will basically be covering that uh, to share that information out there for all of those that want to and need to uh, see how to store it, how to handle it, how to put it out in your training areas, all of which is for the betterment of the dog and follows a more scientific uh, approach versus just, I throw it in a Ziploc bag and toss it out there. It's good. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> or my typical evidence bag, you know, whatever. But so I have a couple questions left as I wrap it up. But um, what have so there's been a trend change in the detection dog world when it comes to breeds. Um, I think partly due to one, the demand, there hasn't, there's not enough sometimes. Uh, inventory of certain breeds that are out there uh, to meet a demand in detection. What are some of the breeds or what are things that you've seen breed-wise in the research that you guys do? I guess I should probably frame the question is, um, what would you say is a up-and-coming breed that's gaining popularity that has proven itself to be a pretty good tool in detection? Um, I think we're probably still in sort of the more traditional breeds. Um, we have mostly Labradors, German Shepherds, Dutch Shepherds, Belgian Malinois. Um, we have dabbled with a few other breeds, and we don't have enough experience to say, oh, my gosh, this is the new hot dog that's going to be you know, everywhere. Um, I think our Labradors, we just there's so many really outstanding Labradors out there. Um, and, you know, our shepherds, when we're looking at these dogs and making sure we're accounting for their health, um, as well as their, their, um, performance, uh, you know, in the detection field, I think we've got some great, great dogs out there. Um, you know, I'm open to other, other breeds and, you know, we're excited to kind of like look at that. Um, but we know in the UK they're using Springers a lot. We, we've only had one Springer in our program and he was one of our medical detection dogs. Um, you know, we've had a few other, what I would maybe call less common breeds, um, but we haven't said, oh my gosh, we have to have lots more of those yet. Yeah. I was to say what I've seen personally, and I've got my hands on numerous over the past like two years is the pointers. I'm seeing a significant increase in those. Um, they've done very well in the uh, work and the professional side of things that you know I've been able to either train them on or, or put them out or seen them in the field myself. There is a difference, though. It was kind of, I'm equating it to because obviously I've been around long enough where there was that change from everybody had German Shepherds to Malinois were becoming more popular. But the initial uh, adjustment for agencies at that time was. You don't train the Malinois the same way you train your German Shepherd. Uh, there was significant differences, which was very hard for agencies to deal with. Uh, I have seen that now with um, those that were very much used to Labradors that now have their hands on pointers and realized, oh, wait, this is it's different. There's really good qualities about the pointer, but those great qualities sometimes uh, end up con- conflicting with a traditional training method that those handlers were used to. And what I mean by that is pointers are very much more open air, want to just stay out of my way, let me hunt, uh, where the Labrador would be more open to you know presentations as needed. But in most cases, the pointers work generally a lot better when the handler just stays out of the way and let them do their do their job. Uh, the 
that instinct for them kicks in really well. So that was one of the changes I've seen um, in the industry. But you brought up a really unique one, which was the, the Spaniels. And overseas, uh, England, Holland, and places like that, the Spaniels are really popular in comparison to what we're used to. Um, you know, I got I saw that when I lived in when I was in the Air Force and I was stationed in Germany and we'd worked with the RAF. Uh, almost all their guys had nothing but spaniels, or they and most of them worked multiple spaniels. Um, you know, obviously, I think here in the states, TSA obviously was a major factor in why they aren't as popular here uh, due to the height requirements and so forth that they have uh, as a directive. But um, uh, kind of funny out here in Las Vegas, uh, one of the vendors out here is very uh, likes using the Spaniels quite a bit. So Las Vegas Metro has numerous Spaniels. Uh, Nevada Highway Patrol also has numerous Spaniels. Um, is there, what have you guys, I mean, like you said it was limited in what you guys have worked with on those. Is there anything particular reason other than just what we're used to is the main reason why we don't use some of these other breeds? I think that it is what we're used to. I, and I think you also have, you know, a good point when we're dealing with a different kind of breed, we have to, we have to look at them differently. We can't treat a pointer like we would a Labrador. Um, and I think, you know, we, as an organization, we're challenged with that, um, because we weren't, we weren't ready to kind of adapt and adjust or we didn't know how to really optimize that dog's success. Um, and so I think part of it is us learning and, and figuring out how to, to maximize their success and then deciding, you know, what it is that we want out of these dogs. Um, and, you know, selecting for the job and not really thinking as much about the breed, but as, you know, about the, the talents, the skills, the, you know, if we can come up with some objective phenotypic characterization of what we want, then we can just, you know, ignore what breed they happen to be. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, there's, there's so many amazing breeds out there that, you know, we haven't even really put our hands on yet and let them do detection. I've come across a few here and there. There was one recently I saw Kelpie. It was amazing. It, it was such a good detection dog, but again, it's not very common. You know, you don't see it too often. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think, you know, in, in this will lead up to my last question is we, you know, have to be more open-minded and look at the dog's skill set and be open to how some of these dogs have very unique skill sets because of they've been uh, their selective breeding and things like that of that nature. That will we can use more than just the typical ones we've got accustomed to, and by kind of broadening our horizons or opening our mind, we will have even more resources. You know, available to us. It just requires a different a change of mind to look at something different uh, and then also to understand the breeds. Well, I think what we can look at is just the sport of, you know, canine nose workers yep. network um, and see the number of breeds that are highly successful in that. And you're like, okay, oh, yeah. you guys are just doing it for fun. And that means that these, you know, I mean, all dogs are white. Well, greyhounds might not be wired for, for you know, <laughs> yeah. their noses so much, <laughs> but um, you know, you know Dogs are wired for this, and if we can sort of take advantage and then look at what other characteristics are desirable for the job that we want them to do, then we can kind of optimize um, what we're doing with the dogs. Absolutely. So with that goes into, give some of the listeners what's going on with the AKC program, uh, what 
some of the goals are. We've talked about it, but we've never really brought them up to the forefront. Uh, and then, of course, the conference that we'll have later this summer, uh, hopefully that'll actually be in person as well as maybe virtual, <laughs> depending yeah, on how right, things go. Right. The, uh, but yeah, talk about the AKC you know, uh, puppy, pro- uh, puppy program and how, what that goal is and what we hope to do. So I'm going to talk bigger than the AKC okay, program. Okay, perfect. Even because, better. Even better. Um, I, yeah, I was part of the working group that was uh, congressionally mandated to look at the development of a national breeding cooperative. And so there are three major approaches um, that people are looking at um, to you know answer how can we increase the domestic production of detection dogs. And um, so the AKC is really jumped, they jumped in before, you know, anybody was willing to step up and they're like, we're doing this. We're going to encourage breeders to designate a puppy out of a litter or more than one. And we're going to give them the tools and the guidance to try and raise that dog in a way that is going to make it eligible um, for a TSA job or a scent detection job. Um, then there is, um, the group out of, um, Homeland Security that is, um, they have a study going where they're looking at a couple of bigger producers and, and looking at them as being sort of feeders into a a co-op. Um, and then the model that, that I like because it's what our model is, is looking at how do we have places all across the country, um, like our program where we bring dogs in at maybe at eight weeks um, and we raise and train them using the most efficient um, methods. Um, so hopefully we'll help you know minimize some of the, the intensity that we're applying, but you know, what's the most efficient protocols and methods so that we can get these dogs raised. And we would anticipate that this could happen you know, in community colleges or in, you know, 4-H groups that they would be raising these dogs with really good guidelines of what should be done at what what age and what stage, and then they would come back into sort of this central pool um, that would be available as part of a national breeding cooperative. So there's a lot of lot of kind of looking at which way is going to work the best. I think we all agree that it's a disseminated model. It's not a central government-based breeding program, but it is actually a cooperative-based model. And and just the logistics and the details of what that's going to look like, I think we're starting to, to you know, gain a little bit of experience and, you know, we'll figure out the, the advantages and disadvantages of each and then hopefully in the end pull all of the best parts of all of them and, and you know, create a model that will work. I absolutely love that because it's one of the things that I was bringing up when I talked to a lot of these uh, breeders is, you know, they got so focused on one particular program and that was, and information was slow to come out and inconsistent and frustrations were building. And I just said, at the end of the day, we all have to work together. It has to be a collaborative effort. We have to establish a process and it's going to be a learning thing. You know, we're going to find out what things work, what things don't work. Um, but with that said, we have to constantly share information with each other, talk to each other, build this and establish that process. And I love that. That's exactly what you were describing there is because that's key. That's, that's what's going to make it work and make it efficient and cost efficient for everybody involved. Uh, but 
having the tribes, for lack of a better term, does nothing but continue to create the divisiveness. And then, you know, there's always going to be the naysayers that say, oh, it can't be done, or this, that, and the other. I'm always the mentality of, let's find the reason why we can. I know we can. You know, the, the model has already been shown to us. Proof of concept exists in the other part of the world. We just have to find what works for us. And it's not that difficult, but it requires that collaborative effort. The doing things like this, sharing the information that you guys have, experiences from the professional side of things, having those that are professionals that they're maybe retiring now, that would be great raisers of young dogs. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And that's you know, so all of this is. so for me, very exciting to see that you guys do that, you know, and I'll say it right now on the air, for me to you, anything you guys need from me, I am more than happy to help. I want to help. Um, you know, this, this is a strong passion of mine, so I want to do whatever I can to help us become so much better and have these great, amazing dogs available to us no matter what the type of professional discipline it might be, or even in the sport world, because some of these dogs may do excellent in the sport side of things, but just weren't exactly what we need on the professional side, but they still have a value and they're still going to be used in a lot of amazing ways. I totally agree. We are absolutely on the same page and that is, that is our passion and our, you know, our desire to create a, you know, not only the national breeding co-op, but a, a center of excellence for detection dogs that can kind of bring us all together. Um, in a in a collaborative way and that's that's the way we approach it we we are a group that doesn't understand the word no um instead it's like how can we make it happen um and that's that is definitely what drives us i i love it i love it love it love it so um i think this was uh a hope for many of the listeners will be very helpful and enlightening and maybe even motivates those that are listening to to say, you know what, we can do this, and I want to be a part of this. So those that want to, uh, first, I'll go with, um, what will be the way that people that want to virtually take part in the, the PenVet conference, how can they do this, and what's the way to, to be a part of that link or what have you? Yeah, so all of the information is on our website as well as our Facebook page. Um, our website is www.vet.com. Dot U-Pen, which is U-P-E-N-N dot E-D-U backslash W-D-C. And hopefully you can link to that somewhere. Yeah, yeah. When, when we get off here, I'll have you just send it to me and then I'll put it on the show notes so that way we can just click right from there. Fantastic. Yeah, so that, that will give people information on how to reach us and our Facebook page is very active. Um, not only the the Working Dog Center itself, but we have a performance medicine, which is really focused on the, the sports medicine and, and rehabilitation of, of working dogs. That's all we work with. And then those that, because uh, I know you're busy, your schedule's busy. An Instagram account. Okay. And uh, I think we have a Twitter account, but we don't really use it very much. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I haven't used mine that much either, either these days. With the the way to get a hold, is that also probably the best way if people wanted to reach out or have questions? Because I know you're busy a lot of times. Is that also a good way that you would see some questions people would have if they wanted to reach out to you guys or, or the, the facility? Is that the easiest way to do that as well? It is. It okay. absolutely is. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. 
Well, I can't thank you enough for your time and discussing this, and it has already spurned other ideas I have that uh, we'll speak about uh, for future either a podcast and or a webinar. Um, so again, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking your time today um, to, to just share this amazing information for those of us that are, you know, nerdy and like dogs and want to gain even more information about uh, our, our, our dogs and our profession. Well, it was super fun talking to you. It's a wonderful topic and thank you for getting this information out to all of those people that, uh, that you know, we look forward to collaborating with and hearing from and working with and you know, seeing them succeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for all you guys out there in the canine world, thanks for listening to Canines Talking Sense where it's okay to be nosy. Mm-hmm.